Welcome in Egypt, Convo! <laughs> we were the first group ever to go to Egypt from Goshen College, and as you might expect, we, we didn't know what to expect. I'm Clayton Matthews, and... Uh... I'm Rachel Friesen. And uh, yeah, what you just heard, uh, we were kind of talking a lot still, but that was the call to prayer, which we heard every day, five times a day. And... Uh, Peter did a nice job of compiling several for us all at one time because that's what we heard as well. We had at least three mosques within very close range of our home in Cairo. And so we'd hear that blasting from loudspeakers at many hours of the day, one of them being about 4 to 5 a.m. And I think most of us got used to that throughout the time that we were in Cairo. I slept with earplugs every night and still woke up every time. So that was great. <laughs> So that was one of the surprises when we first got there, you know, being woken up at five in the morning. Also, you know, we, we had a lot of preconceptions. We thought things were going to be a certain way, you know, pyramids, sphinx, all that stuff. But, you know, it was a lot different. We, we also heard that there was going to be secret police, and we were scared that they were going to be listening to us at coffee shops and stuff, you know, listening in on our conversations and then hauling us away to, to jail. It turns out the secret police weren't very secret. They had big machine guns hidden under their suit jackets. So you could, you could tell. <laughs> uh, other things that we were expecting but didn't really know how to experience until we got there were um, the very high population. There's about 80 million people in Egypt, and a quarter of those, approximately 22 million, live in greater Cairo. So that was our first experience, getting dropped into a city that was absolutely enormous. And, well, I guess I should say dense, not enormous. Um, and the population uh, is 90% Muslim, so that's why we heard the call to prayer so much. And then the other 10% is Christian. So with so many people crammed in right next to the Nile, it's, it's really hard to organize, especially with so much poverty. So there's a really intense bureaucracy that's really hard to navigate, especially with all of the uh, different social expectations of you know, a Muslim nation. And so we need to do some thanking. <laughs> yeah, Tom Myers was our leader. He's, he's usually the coordinator for all the SST units, but because ours was very new, uh, he did all the setting up for us and was our leader there as well. And we are very grateful for all the work he did. Um, there were points during the summer that I was not sure we were going to have a home when we got there, but we did, and it was very nice. And he also had a lot of help from a woman named Heba, who is from Egypt, and some of you may remember she spoke here a couple years ago about being a Muslim woman, and um, she was a really great help. She 
has her PhD in ancient Egyptian history, and she was our tour guide um, for every trip that we had there. We went on many, and she also was really helpful in coordinating everything and telling us how to experience things. Um, we may have pictures, I'm not sure, but we went on a few trips with Heba and Tom and everybody. Um, Two of the trips were, well, one of the trips was to Alexandria where we got to see the National History Museum and the, um, and the, the new library in Alexandria, which is immense and ridiculous, but not nearly full of books yet because it can hold like six million or something like that. Also, we went to Dahab, which is in the Sinai Peninsula and got to snorkel with some coral and, and I think I saw a lionfish actually. But, th so that was cool. Also, just so you know, this, this dress I'm wearing is called an, a galabea. It's, you know, what the, the country folk wear most times in, in Egypt. We also took one long trip to Upper Egypt, was, which is in the south, and we, um, oh, these are the other trip, sorry. The, uh, we got to see Aswan, um, which is where there's a large dam that's a really big part of Egyptian history. When they created this dam in the, in the past century, it really helped develop the country and lots of other things. Um, and then we went to Luxor, which is one, where there's a lot of the temples, the ancient Egyptian sites. And, but most of our time we spent in Cairo, and Lizzie and Phil will tell us about where we lived there. Good morning, my name is Lizzie. Um, Phil and I are going to talk about the study portion of our SST. This is Phil. I'm Phil. This is Phil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we lived in an evangelical church hostel um, located in Hawan, which is a city in Greater Cairo. Um, at first I was skeptical because I was really looking forward to having host families, and it turns out we weren't going to have host families, but it turned out to be pretty decent. I loved it. Um, so, although we didn't have traditional host families, the church community became family right away. Um, Otto, our chef, who also lived in the hostel, cooked for us um, breakfast and dinner. He became uh, Baba Otto, which means Father Otto. However, he was more like a mother away from home for me. He cooked for us, he cared for us when we were sick, which for some people was very often. Um, and he was very protective of us, to say the least. Um, to complete the family, the rest of the church became like brothers and sisters, and it was a great host family experience that I wouldn't change for anything. Um, so in the building that we lived in, it had four floors plus the rooftop. Um, on the ground floor, there was the dining area and a kitchen area, a ping pong table. That's the kitchen area where we ate, except it's kind of dark. Um, there was also a canteen where we bought a lot of our snacks. Um, after dinner and where a lot of us got our water supply since we were told not to drink from the tap. Oops. <laughs> um, all 19 of us lived in three rooms on the second floor of the building. Um, each room had a bed for each of us, two toilets, a shower, and one squeaky fan that didn't cool anybody off, but it was there nonetheless. Um, six of us girls lived in one room. Uh, five of the girls lived in another, and all eight guys lived in the third, so you can imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the roof of the building, there was a washing machine. Oh, that's me. 
On the roof of the building, there was a washing machine that took like two hours to wash really small loads of clothes. So we quickly restored to um, washing by hand in the sink and hanging our clothes to dry on clotheslines where they dried really fast because it was really dry heat. Um, down back on the ground next to the courtyard, there was a dirt field. Um, <laughs> there was there. There's a dirt field where the youth would play um, soccer and volleyball pretty intensely. Um, daily during the summer and Thursdays and Sundays once school started. Um, next to that, you can see the church where they held services in Arabic, obviously. Um, leadership activities for the youth and worship services for the children, along with a lot of other activities. Um, although we couldn't understand the services, it was super hot, um, and we lacked material things that we normally, normally take for granted, such as good washing machines and air conditioning. Um, I think it's fair to say that we all enjoyed our time in Helwan. So some of you may or may not be interested in knowing what a normal day was like for us on Egypt SST. Our morning started out early, some of us waking up to the call of prayer, which we heard earlier, and some of us to the voice of Adel, our cook, yelling to his two sidekicks, Amir and Boutros, and it, it went something like this every morning, multiple times, Yamir, Ya Boutros, and I don't know, maybe 20 times every morning until they woke up an hour later. So, needless to say, that did wake us up every morning. Um, we took breakfast at 7.30, and that usually consisted of falafels, beans, eggs, bread, jelly, and of course tea, or our all-time favorite Nescafe, which, if you don't know, is an instant coffee mix. Yeah, and that's Lizzie and Ad, that's Adel. <laughs> um, which is an instant coffee mix that most Egyptians assume that Americans love, which <laughs> is not true, but... <laughs> We did learn to love it over time, although it was a little bit rough at first. Um, after breakfast, we split up into groups of three or five guys and girls to, to walk to the metro, and which usually involves stopping at our favorite bakery on the way, and then buying a ticket at the metro station, and riding 30 to 40 minutes into Hadaik al-Madi, which is where our school was located. Um, after we arrived at ETC, which was our school, I think we have pictures somewhere. Yeah, this is our school. Um, we usually took turns checking email before classes started, drinking tea, finishing homework, or just hanging out. And yeah, but by nine, we had to start class. Class went about as you would expect. We played games, struggled with grammar, forgot vocab words, and asked our teachers to explain different aspects of Egyptian culture that we had begun to pick up on. So needless to say, by noon our brains were sufficiently overwhelmed. Thankfully, this was the time that we had for taking lunch, which mostly consisted of kushri, which is a pasta-based dish with lentils and rice. I was not the biggest fan, a little bit too much pasta, Lizzie was a fan. Um, or getting a falafel or bean sandwich at the local gad. Um, sometimes we would venture into Mahdi, which is the American or foreign section of Cairo, where we would have to pay a little bit more for something different to eat, but it was usually very good. Um, after an hour or so of lunch, we would return to ETC for afternoon lectures, and some of them were good, and some were not good, to say the least. <laughs> some lectures about music and culture of Egypt were much, much more interesting than, say, the man who spoke about what happiness is and how you, <laughs> how you find that, and now we all know that Nora will indeed not be happy 
unless she gets into kiteboarding. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Um, after the lectures, we usually had about four or five hours until dinner, which was at 7.30 or 8. During this time, we had a chance to explore Cairo on our own, which usually was going to downtown Tahrir Square or the University of Cairo bookstore, or simply just walking around for hours and getting a feel of the city and all the sights. Dinner was usually good, but was mostly a combination of chicken, rice, and fish every day, and was always accompanied by a side dish of cucumbers, tomatoes, and onions. But I, I learned to love it by the end of my service because I had the same thing every day, so that was good. Um, so the time after dinner was also a very good experience and I think maybe the most meaningful, at least for me. Um, halfway through service, we found Karnak, the Ahua, or coffee shop, which most of us guys would go to on a daily basis and get some amazing Egyptian coffee, tea, or to smoke shisha, which is a water pipe with the local guys and, I don't know, try to shoot the breeze and... <laughs> play games, play chess. <laughs> yeah, but aside from the Ahua, we could hang out in the courtyard, our rooms, or the roof of Amman house. And normal bedtime, at least for the guys, was around 12 or 1, and we had a, after, we would have a long discussion about what our favorite part of American breakfast was, or whether, or whether, or what the true meaning of the property wild card and Monopoly deal was, and whether it can be stolen or not. Thank you, John. <laughs> yes. And I think Elspeth is going to talk about gender dynamics. Hello, I'm Elspeth. Okay. The population of Cairo is well over 7 million. When I was first made partial to that information, I probably said something like, whoa. When I was actually walking around with the masses, however, I realized that a more appropriate thing to have said would have been, geez. That sounds like a bunch of people wriggling around in a sardine can. The most incredible thing about the people in the sardine can of Cairo, however, was the fact that they did not touch each other. Women didn't brush by men. Men didn't brush by women. I could walk down a street and Tahir Square, one of the busiest bits of downtown Cairo, and walk past hundreds of men without so much as feeling a single fiber of a shirt sleeve graves my arm. That was one of my first observations regarding gender dynamics in Cairo. Men could hold other men's hands or walk down the street arm in arm, as could women with other women, but intergender physical contact of any sort was not okay. Even interactions as basic as paying money and receiving change became delicate dances. When I bought things from men, I had to be very careful to give and receive coins in such a way that my hands and fingers never touched his. It wasn't something I'd ever had to think about before. The funniest bit was that after about two weeks of being in Egypt, we were all sitting at dinner one night when someone remarked that we were completely gender segregated. We all denied it at first, and then we stopped and looked around and realized that it was true. The women were all on one half of the room and the men were all on the other. <laughs> Perturbed, we spent the next few weeks making conscious efforts to intermingle, which being Goshen college students was a completely foreign thing to have to think about. <laughs> I suppose I could tell some nasty stories about gender in Cairo, but I could also tell some funny ones. And I think I'm probably right in guessing that those are the ones that you would rather hear. And I know I'm definitely right in guessing that those are the ones I would rather tell. So here they are. Um, for the first one, some friends of mine and I were out shopping in Margirgis, which is a part of Cairo, called, it's named after St. George. And we, were, we walked past the shop that we had walked past a couple times and the guy had been trying to get us to come into his store like they always did. And finally he was like, 
no, no, come in, you have to have a Coke with me so that to celebrate the birth of my child. And whether that was like a ploy to get us to come into his shop or not, I have no idea. But I, I good-naturedly asked, was it a boy or a girl? And he looked at me like I was deranged. And he said, what? I'm an Egyptian man. It was a son. And, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, so that's the first one. As if, like, any other gender would have been an insult to his manhood. Thanks. And then <laughs> the second story was, I, I have short hair. And I also dress kind of androgynously, I guess. And I, <laughs> I did not change my ways in Egypt. I did not go around in colorful skirts. And so I would always be like, I would sit on the metro. There were two cars. There were, women, there were two women's cars on a metro that only women could be in. And if you were a man, you would get arrested or fined. And then if you were, or if you were a man or a woman, there were the rest of the cars, any gender could be on them. And like one day I would, sit, I would sit down with my friends with like David on one side and Clayton on the other. And like the guy across the aisle would look up at me from his newspaper. And then, <laughs> what? Or like I'd be walking down the street and I'd pass by somebody and they'd be, huh? And then they would always let me go. Well, there was this one time <laughs> when I got on the metro with all my friends, we were going to take a trip and I was on the women's car. And we all had, like, we were laden with stuff. And we, I got onto the metro. I was facing the back window and talking to my people. And all of a sudden, we heard this pounding on the door. And I turned around, and there was a police officer staring very angrily at us. And he wagged his finger at us like, I saw what you did. And <laughs> we, stu we stood there in complete confusion. We couldn't figure out what was up. And then somebody was finally like, Elspeth. He thought you were a man. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I started laughing. And quite soon, word spread throughout the car, and the whole metro car laughed at me for the next 15 minutes <laughs> and assured me that I was beautiful and that I did not look like a man and welcomed me to Egypt for the 10 millionth time. <laughs> so <laughs> there was that. And although both of my stories were a bit silly, I think they reveal really serious things about how gender is viewed in Egypt. They show that only two genders are recognized and that each gender is assigned certain qualities and there isn't much room for change. My uncovered short hair caused Egyptians to call my gender into question all the time. Also, the shopkeeper's reaction to my curiosity over the gender of his newborn child was, needless to say, offensive to me, since he clearly thought his manhood would have been called into question had he fathered anything but a son. As offensive as these facts of life in Egypt often were to me, I was equally fascinated by them. There's nothing like a drastically different place to keep your thoughts fresh and alive. And next comes Tilly. Hi, I'm Tilly Yoder. I'm talking about service. The service for RSST was slightly unusual in that it lasted only one month because of the difficulty in finding placements and connections outside of Cairo without arousing the suspicion of various security forces. However, we managed to select our locations and jobs more or less personally. For instance, Phil decided to stay in Hawan and worked as an aide in a mental hospital. David had ideas for a ceramics project in the Coptic Retreat Center Anaphora and joined Elspeth in her service there. Summer flew out of the country to stay with the family and work in Jordan's capital, Amman. 
Nathan Peter worked under the Egyptian government in Luxor's Suzanne Mubarak Library, where they taught clashes in English and web design. Most of us did some form of teaching English, though Ben and John, who were technically posted in the rural city of Kosea, taught only about a week and ended up spending a few weeks in Anaphora helping David and Elspeth construct a model of Jerusalem. <laughs> Melissa and Nora were stationed in Tanta, Lizzie and Sarah in Asut, Hannah and Bonha were all taught elementary age children or younger in private schools. Five of us, Rachel, Abe, Andrea, Clayton, and myself, went to the city of Benny Swaif. Clayton worked at a school for the mentally handicapped, and the rest of us worked in Coptic private schools. The five of us also spent our evenings teaching English to adults, which was a nice change from the hordes of active children who asked you, what's your name, what's your name, about every five minutes, asked you about your love life every 10, what, you're not married, what's wrong? and asked you home to dinner daily. Housing for service also enabled some of us to li experience living in a more deeply Egyptian setting. Aben Clayton stayed in a boys' orphanage, Andrea in both a girls' orphanage and with a host family. Hannah, Rachel, and I were all privileged to have host families, and Phil just moved in with the staff of Amon House. Other housing included living in a hotel, staying with a member of Mennonite Central Committee, and living in school apartments. Through the invitations of Egyptians, we managed to experience life inside Egyptian homes and workplaces in a way that we couldn't when we were in Cairo. We could go shopping, go to beauty parlors, visit families, and even attend wedding parties, and all to get an insider's perspective on what the culture was like. Even Nate and Peter, who were relatively stuck in a hotel, were able to bond with the southern Nubian culture and experienced what subcultures in Egypt looked like. Everyone's service was interrupted for the week-long festival of Eid, giving us opportunities to observe celebrations and maybe even go on a trip. The holiday celebrates the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his son, Ishmael in the Islamic tradition, not Isaac, and Muslim families gather to slaughter a goat or a cow and spend time with each other. One can literally see bloodstains on the street the week of the festival. Christian families tend to take the week as an opportunity to travel, Hannah, Melissa, and Nora got to return to Alexandria that way, and us Benny Swafers went on visits to a multitude of monasteries. Others simply soaked up more of the festivities and accepted invites from families. These are just some of the things we touched on during our short but wonderful month of service, but there's so much more. Ask us about it sometime. And I believe now Hannah is going to talk about what Egyptian family life is like. Hello, my name is Hannah. Um, I had the privilege of living with an evangelical Christian family in the small city of Banha, small meaning two million people or so lived there. Um, my host dad, Mr. Samir, was actually the principal of the Al Salam school where I helped teach English to 40 screaming kindergartners every day. I shared a room with his youngest daughter, Sally, who also taught English at that school. After spending only two hours or so with my host family my first day of service, I quickly came to three conclusions about my family, and after spending only two days or so on service, I decided that my conclusions included the vast majority of Egyptians. First of all, Egyptians value relationships and go to great lengths to keep in touch. My family's oldest daughter lived in West Palm Beach, Flor West Palm Beach Florida, and yet my host family, or host sister, called her almost two or three times daily. My dad could not understand how I was okay with not calling my own family as frequently as they did, and literally stood by the phone until I called home the first few days I was there. <laughs> Secondly, Egyptians love to eat in enormous quantities. 
Lunch is their biggest meal of the day, but any meal is quickly devoured with great relish. I began SST fully expecting to be overwhelmed by a variety of different things, but nothing really prepared me for the full extent of Egyptian hospitality. The first day or so, I was fed constantly, nonstop. At one point, my host dad literally followed me around the house with a bowl full of mangoes, begging me to please eat, that it was good for me, it was good for me. Despite the fact that I had already eaten two bowls full of food, a, plat a platter of cookies, and another platter of crackers, it seemed I could not move to another part of the house without a plateful of food being placed in front of me. And by the end of the first day, I felt so full I almost felt nauseous and thought I might just start crying if I saw another piece of fruit or a roll. <laughs> by the end of the service, I had gradually began, began to get the hang of what to do, and I appreciated mealtimes with my family. In this culture, it's a matter of honor to be able to care for a guest and provide for them well, so offering me all this food was a way of showing me care and honor. Thirdly, Egyptians love their TV. Everyone in the entire nation has a satellite dish, and at mealtimes, their passions for food and television combine as families come together and watch B-grade American horror films. I spend hours and hours watching TV shows and movies, mostly in English, although my sister and mother loved a particular Turkish soap opera and insisted I watch it daily with them. I still have absolutely no idea what was going on. Many of my Egyptian friends told me that watching shows like Oprah helped them practice their English. Though I probably watched more TV than I have ever watched in my entire life in those few short weeks, watching American films along with my Egyptian family and explaining to them that high-speed car chases and massive explosions are actually not the norm in cities like Chicago and LA, they still don't believe me, proved to be an enlightening cultural experience. I feel blessed to have been able to live, fellowship, and worship with my host family during service, and I'm glad to have been given this opportunity. All right, well, I did my service assignment in uh, Amman, Jordan. Oh, yeah, clicker. Okay, so you see, um, it's, it's close to Egypt. It was about an hour plane ride. Um, and I got special permission to leave Egypt and to head to Jordan um, so I could live with my family. And when I say family, I mean my 12 cousins, three second cousins, five aunts, and an uncle, and that's only in the house I lived in. Um, and you see... Uh, in Jordan and other Arab countries, many families live together. Oh, that's Jordan, Petra, famous. <laughs> All right, um, these are uh, buildings like, um, okay, one of these apartment buildings is like an example um, of where a family would live, and that's kind of, this is taken from the roof of my apartment building, place, house. So, um, yeah, so you all live together. And um, it was an advantage as much as a disadvantage for me because every time I'd come home from school, um, I would stop by each floor and say, hey, how are you? Oh, come in and eat. Okay. And then I'd go to the next floor. Oh, come in and eat. Okay. And by the time I got to my top floor, the top floor where I was actually sleeping, I would eat like three or four dinners. Um, which, I mean, it was amazing. I love Jordanian food, but um, I think we all got that sense of, overfed. But besides being well-fed, I was also given the opportunity to attend a mosque. And, um, well, this is a, like an example of a mosque. Um, and uh, this is where the women would worship. They usually would worship on a balcony. Um, that's just to, there's a lot of 
bending over and um, kneeling and um, during the prayer, and that's just for the respect of women. Um, and they usually have that screen, so they're blocked off as well. Um, and, uh, but I found out that in preparation to going to the mosque was quite a process. Uh, luckily, my aunt was there every step of the way, and first uh, I was instructed to take a shower. And after I showered, I had to wash my hands, first the right, then the left, three times. Uh, I then put on my hijab, and I was like, okay, amto, which means aunt, uh, I'm done. No, 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 she said, you have to wash your face three times. Okay, so I washed my face. All right, amto, I'm done. No, 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 no. Summer, you still have to wash behind your ears, your feet, your legs, and your hair yet three times. And this is after I took a shower. So I was like, oh, okay, Amto, is there anything else? And she said, yes, there is. If you fart, you have to start all over, <laughs> starting with the shower. <laughs> to be fair, I'm, I'm unsure if this process is the same with all Muslims in Jordan. However, my aunt, who has been a devout Muslim since birth, sees passing gas or using the restroom as a degradation to the mosque. Although my father is Muslim, I knew little of the Islamic traditions before my service in Jordan. Um, by the end, I had developed so much respect for the religion. Muslims pray five times a day, fast for at least a month, and give away 2% of their annual income to the poor. Muslims truly live every day to worship Allah, or the one true God. And there's something really humbling in that, even if it takes a little extra time in the shower. Andrea. Belly dancing at the insistence of a nun. Holy communion bread eaten as a snack after hours long services. Incense filled chapels resounding with chants. Coptic Christians in Egypt practice ancient church traditions to this day, but surprised us with their sometimes unconventional behavior, their humor, and always with abundant hospitality. Christians comprise only 10 to 15% of the population in Egypt, and about 95% of those belong to the Coptic Church. One of the oldest churches in the world, it was established in Egypt shortly after Jesus' ascension, and it became the birthplace of monasticism. The Copts developed a language from ancient Greek and ancient Egyptian. While no longer regularly spoken, it's still liturgical language, spoken some during services. The Coptic Church is Orthodox, with differences in theology from that of other Eastern Orthodox and Western churches, but also similarities, things we would recognize. They have a pope, bishops, and a plethora of saints. A few of us spent a lot of, times, lot of time with monks, priests, nuns, and bishops, which were cross-cultural experiences even within Egypt. So I'm going to give you a picture of what a Coptic Church service looks like. The men are all seated on the left side of the church, women on the right. Robed priests enter down the center aisle, processing to the grand altar in the front of the church, the holiest spot. As the incense starts infusing the air, chant-like singing, rhythmic symbols, and Arabic words hypnotize us. So that's just a short idea of what would go on for about two and a half hours, at least. So after that time, we were spritzed often with holy water as the, the priests were exiting, 
And we exited ourselves amazed and a little stiff and still sort of mentally exhausted from trying to figure out what was going on. Coptic Christians welcomed us like family, changing our stereotypes of robed clergy and stuffing us with food, as already has been mentioned. 25 girls at a Coptic orphanage um, adopted me as their big sister during service. Sister Nardine is the patient and generous nun who runs the home. Once when I was at a birthday party with her, the Arabic pop music blaring, she leaned over and insisted that I belly dance. She saw my hesitation at the request and then told me, it's okay, I'm here, as if that made it okay. <laughs> um, soaking in the sheer irony and hilarity of the moment, I proceeded to dance something belly dance-esque, which is traditional dance in Egypt, followed by Abe Pauls, who really showed me up. <laughs> yeah. Men belly dance in Egypt and they're really good. Luckily, the event is captured by video on my camera, which you can come and ask me for a showing. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe not. Um, that's Sister Nardine. Um, after two weeks at the orphanage, I moved to the home of a priest and his family. I wasn't sure what it was going to be like to live with a priest, but my first afternoon in Father Yusuf's home, he did the customary Egyptian thing. As soon as you get home, you change into your pajamas. Without his black robe and church cap, which he had to wear for this photo, he looked like a jolly Santa Claus. I knew at that moment that I was welcomed into his family, and I learned much from a man who is very interested in peace building. Though we came knowing little about the cops, we left with surprising friendships, insight into an ancient and modern church, the smells of incense, and prayers for the future of minorities in Egypt. My name is Peter. And my name is Abe. Um, as many of you are probably aware, there's a lot of uh, protesting going on in Egypt right now. Uh, so we just wanted to give you a little bit of a context for what's going on. In 1952, a military coup overthrew King Farouk and established the first of the modern Egyptian dictators. In 1981, President Sadat was assassinated, giving rise to the current dictator, President Mubarak. Egypt has been under emergency law since 1967, suspending constitutional rights such as habeas corpus, effectively turning Egypt into a police state. Inspired by protests in Tunisia, mass protests broke out in Egypt on January 21st. This day was dubbed the Day of Rage, and the peaceful protests broke into violence when the police descended on protesters with tear gas and water hoses. Throughout the following week, the government shut down internet access, cut all cell phone service, and to disguise secret police as looters in an attempt to discredit the protesters. As the week escalated, the headquarters of the National Democratic Party, this would be Mubarak's party, was looted and burned, as were several police stations. Since the beginning of the protests, Mubarak has gone through two vice presidents, dissolved his cabinet, and promised not to seek re-election, though he stated he would stay on to supervise the next government. He has not, however, conceded the one thing the protesters have been demanding his immediate resignation. The widespread protesting is both a joy and a concern. Egypt has been under authoritarian rule for about 5,000 years, many of those controlled by foreign powers. It has been ruled by a series of dictators masquerading as a democracy for the past six decades. The collective standing up to power that has a track record of simply arresting all opponents of the government is very uplifting. 
On the flip side, Egypt has had problems with sectarian violence between Christians and Muslims, and a few Egyptians we talked to expressed concern for what could happen without the police state containing everything. So I would now like to lift up our brothers and sisters of Egypt in prayer. Dear Creator God, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Egypt in this time of turmoil. Guide them away from sectarian violence. Deliver, deliver them through these trials and show them your salam. For you bring good news to the oppressed. Bind up the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Amen. And now I'd like to close our time here with a poem. Um, I wrote this poem um, in two parts. The first part I wrote about four weeks into our time in Cairo when I was sort of reacting to the kind of society that I was witnessing. And then the second half I wrote um, about three days after the intense rioting started in Cairo. And uh, after this poem, um, there will be a brief announcement by the Goshen uh, Theater Department. In the land of kebab, the streets hustle and throb, not enough jobs. Bricks, apartments, empty compartments, vacancies in the context of society. Lacking propriety they see, salesmen, policemen, more unemployed men. Complex is reaching the sky, but as hard as they try, they are trapped in a place. Not their faces, but their clothes and their shoes. Reading their newspapers, discussions of changes, better off places, political races, nothing changes. The woman on the curb who wears a niqab, she sobs for her son, the one who is trapped. Tapped for his labor, but never to savor a life free from the woes that his mother now knows. Smog, the fog lifted icy trees of green, but mostly of brown. No roses in this town. A ray of light shines down through the haze, down to the maze where the people stand dazed, unleashed, released in a blazed expression of unvocalized tension. They march and they cheer and they cry and they die and they wait. Hate transcended, bended in their mutual break from oppression. Celebrate while they send in the troops, news censored, chaos entered. Revolution in the air as it rides on the prayers of the weak and the meek and the youth, seeking a future that was gone from the start, but now as the clouds begin to part, a ray of light shines down past the haze into the hearts of the Egyptian people who hear the cries for justice from the steeples and the minarets. They organize in the streets while the suits in power are hedging their bets. No regrets. The faces of calm become the faces of rage, the stage set for political change. Plain and simple, the kindle's been lit and the shit's hit the fan, and now every woman, child, and man is standing, demanding their rights. <laughs>